And welcome back to the to the podcast. And in this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Pastor Gloria as a Kiwi and interview her. She has an incredible story. You will thoroughly fall in love with her within the first 15 minutes. Um, I just love her story. We had a chance to meet up about a year ago. I was on sabbatical and she was here working on her grad, doing her graduate work uh, at Wesley Seminary up in Indiana. I happened to be there and we had a mutual friend that we connected up with and we spent the last year trying to connect, but it's a little challenging doing it internationally. And so this year she was back doing some more graduate work and we had a chance to sit down and she shares her story. It's kind of a long episode, but it is so worth it. Uh, I just encourage you to listen and to share this with a friend and enjoy the episode. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and flood the airwaves with something different? Well, how do you say your last name? Azikiwi. Azikiwi. Yes, Azikiwi. I'm not promising. I'm just going to call you Gloria on the intro. That's fine. I'm not going to promise. You're from Kenya, but what part of Kenya? I live in a town called Thika. That's where we've been doing our ministry from 2013. And so, and we serve with the Wesleyan Church in Kenya. So that's where we've been doing our ministry. Now, you, is that where you were originally born? Where were you born? No, I was born in Nairobi, raised in Nairobi. So basically my orientation of ministries uh, coming to the faith happened within the urban culture of the city of Nairobi. Yeah, that, that, that is what has been familiar all along. Yeah. Now, just geographically help me, Where is how, how far away is Nairobi from where you are now? It's about, okay, I use kilometers. Okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> so, I'll translate for my U.S. Listeners. Yeah, <laughs> it's about 45, 40, between 40 and 45 kilometers from uh, Nairobi. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then, like, culturally, mm-hmm. is is where you are now, is that more urban, less urban, what? The funny thing, it's an interesting dynamic. We didn't know this because we thought because of the proximity with this main city that this particular town would be very urban. But uh, when we planted the church, uh, and that's another story I'll explain later, uh, we didn't do much research into the culture and what. So we came in with our assumptions only to discover that the town was... Has a rural urban flair, and so it's an interesting mix that played into how we were doing ministry. It's almost rural and urban, kind of blended. Yes, it's a blended, interesting blended version. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you grow up in the church? Yes, my parents are, are Christians. My dad is a bishop right now. He was. Uh, ordained a bishop this past December. Um, and so I've grown up in a Christian home. 
um, influenced from the home front where faith is concerned. But then I gave my life to Christ when I was in, um, I was uh, a teenager at age 15. And then shortly after that, I was in high school. Shortly after that, I was elected in that particular, it was a girls' boarding school, so I was elected to become the, what you call the Christian Union Chair Lady. And so I was thrust into leadership. And this is like, let, let, let me simplify it. It's like uh, the pastor of the church in that high school. Okay, so kind of like chaplain maybe? Sorry. Yeah, you would say, let me just say the shepherd. That would simplify it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I, so it introduced me in a very simple way what you'd call pastoral ministry because you really were the shepherd visiting the flock (laughs) fellow high school mates who are are born again uh, coming up with mechanisms to disciple and so I was introduced to a lot of things that later on when I look back at what I've been doing now in the mainstream church uh, it all started when I was 16 years of age right (laughs) yes so this was a Christian boarding school? No, no it not was Catholic. It was a Catholic oh, school. okay, gotcha, Catholic. So the Christians, the Protestants, as we were referred to, were, were given a space to actually do their church. Okay, so it was a Catholic boarding school. Yes. But then the Protestants could have church yes. on campus or whatever. Yes. That's yes. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they, they allowed <laughs> us, and it's amazing because, of course, they didn't allow... Sometimes they were very restrictive of us inviting people from outside. Right. So basically we were preaching and doing uh, a lot of the ministry was being done internally uh, by those of us who were elected leaders. So they allowed us that space. So your parents were Christian, they were Protestants? Yes. And just like non-denominational? Or? Uh, they were... The funny thing with the African situation... Uh, is that uh, the Protestant church has been largely influenced by the charismatic movement. Okay, so a little more Uh, Yes, a little more. It's a mix of everything, you know. (laughs) It's a mix of everything. Um, But uh, I was in a non-denominational setup, but, yeah, influenced by charismatics a bit. And so... You find even the Catholic Church is influenced by the charismatic movement in terms of worship, in terms of uh, just some level of exuberance in, right. in, in worship. You find the services are very lively in singing, in music, in dance, in expression. Yeah. 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 In, I have a friend who was raised in um, a, a different African country in, in the Catholic Church. And yes. And she came here and she's like, what's wrong with the Catholic Church here? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think so the, the charismatic movement has just crossed the borders. It's uh, an influence uh, other aspects of ministry. So as, as non-denominational, I, you'd think we were Pentecostal, but we are not because of just that excitement in worship, in dance. People lift up their hands, they sing and what. So what uh, defines many of the churches is now when it comes to doctrinally what we believe 
that's now where churches go. <laughs> we are separate okay. ways. Yeah. So I'm curious when you when you gave your life to Christ, was it was there an experience with that, or was it was it, or did you just kind of have this t- moment where this is all I've all I've ever known, and this just seems I was on a path of rebellion okay. at that age. Reason is that uh, I had grown up uh, with my parents were extremely strict. Uh, coming from the leadership background of the church, especially very conservative Africa. And so they they were extremely strict. The pressure of being a leader in the African context is that your children had to, by all means, <laughs> turn out right. <laughs> so as a result of that pressure, there were just some things that in the way that they raised us, that left some sense of woundedness and disillusionment with matters of faith, because now we started seeing double standards. And so I got to a level, I began to question uh, this faith from an early age. I started questioning the minute I started entering into my teenage years. And so I was on this path already, Mentally, I, it hadn't manifested in my actions, but mentally right. I was already on a path to rebellion. My sisters weren't as lucky. I mean, they, they rebelled, uh, full-fledged. <laughs> they, they didn't just think about it. <laughs> they didn't just think about it. I was really considering, but they, they just rebelled. It was at that point, as I'm making a decision about where I'm headed, that uh, my mom she could see and so she gives me some books to read about the faith and uh, and I start getting convicted we have all night prayer meetings in in our context churches organize all all, uh, all night prayer meetings and so uh, we had a lady who was staying with us and that she was preparing to go for an all night prayer meeting so I asked her okay where you're going to church she said yeah where this place? I'm like, can I come along? I am totally, first of all, in, in rebellion mode and what, but there's this sense of conviction. So I follow her to the church. I don't know what they preached. I, I, I can't remember anything that was said in that church. But all I remember is that when people were told, okay, now you can get your time to pray, I went and knelt down on one of the benches. And I, at that point, I gave my life to Christ. I was in such turmoil before that point. But when I gave my life to Christ that night, I sensed such deep joy and such deep peace. But also, there was just like an atmosphere around me uh, with screams of, you will only survive two weeks, uh, like you've always done. Of course, when you're in a Christian home, you, you get saved many times. And so, <laughs> same here. <laughs> yeah, you get saved many times, and you, when you lie, you've uh, you've turned away from the faith. When you do this, but on this particular occasion, as I'm as I'm wrestling, I I I tell the Lord at this particular point in time, I remember this prayer, and I told the Lord, Lord, I'm not doing this for two weeks or two months. I'm doing this for keeps. Keep me in the faith. And those voices went 
quiet. And I was at peace. And I walked out of that place knowing I was a different person. So I went back to school. And uh, I'd already told the, the then CU chair lady that I, I came into that school pretending I was a Christian, but it didn't work out because my actions and the testimonies I was giving in front of people were not going in the same direction. So at some point, one of my classmates said, you know, Gloria, you need to decide whether you're a Christian or not. You say this and then you do the opposite. So I went to the CU chair lady and I told her before that term ended, I'm not returning to the CU because I need to make a decision. I am not a Christian. And so I go home, but I come back and I stand to testify in front of the CU crowd or the Christian Union crowd and everybody goes into tears and <laughs> I'd really made a mark <laughs> in that school for the short time I was there, you know. And everybody's in tears and they're all just in this celebration that finally we've been praying for you, Gloria. And now we are so grateful God has answered our prayers. I was like, okay. Yeah, so that was my journey into the faith. I'm like, I don't want to stop. That was really good. I'm like, keep going. All right, so let's talk about, so now you're back in the boarding school, mm-hmm. and you're, this is for keeps. Yes, this is for keeps. Not for two weeks. And and they gave me two weeks also in school. Same and, voices I found. I found them in school. <laughs> two weeks. Two weeks turned into two months. There was a major radical transformation. I was extremely loud in school. And so all of a sudden, there's a calmness that has settled over me. I'm no longer all over the place and, you know, trying to seek attention. I was just calm in my spirit, in my heart. There was just joy and calmness and peace that had entered my heart. My friends, my rowdy crowd started feeling very uncomfortable with me. And they started falling off uh, the grid and... uh, Slowly, I was embraced by the community of faith. Shortly after that, uh, the following year is when they were doing elections because the CU chair lady was was, uh, in her last year of high school and they needed to transition to a new leadership. And uh, we we have Form 1 to Form 4, that's high school. I was was in Form 2, uh, and typically they used to select the Form 4s at the beginning of the year to to be chair ladies. So when they're doing the elections, I'm elected and I'm in Form 2. I have three more years to even qualify. And so I went to the uh, the Christian Union patron. That, that was one of our teachers. He was a physics teacher. And I was like, there are more. I just got saved the other day. I mean, are you sure you guys want somebody who just got saved the other day? I still need to figure out a lot of things. I think it was a mistake. And he said, no, it is not a mistake. You will stay and you will lead. So I was very unsure of myself because part of the team that had been selected, like the secretary, the treasurer to the CU, uh, were very seasoned believers who had gotten saved in their childhood. <laughs> and me, I just got saved the other day. In fact, they were 
part of the team that was praying for this crazy lady. And so, <laughs> and I'm thinking, how do I lead these people? What am I telling them? So I'm in this dilemma, but this physics teacher who was a Christian Union patron says, no, you will stay. I was in this uh, period of inferiority complex, and I let them lead as I followed until I attended a conference uh, that was in uh, when I was in Form 3. So for an entire year, I was just a very docile leader, very insecure, uh, trying to learn and figure out my own life. So it was the others who were leading, and I was just ratifying what they were saying. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that one is good. So I attended a conference, and in this conference, we were being challenged to rise up. And I felt the Lord really minister to me in that conference, that it was time for me to rise and step into my calling to shepherd his people. So when I went back to the school, that was my turning point. And all of a sudden, there was confidence. I felt confident and, you know, empowered to actually um, step into that role. And uh, the trajectory of the Christian Union, even Catholics started getting saved. We got into trouble with the school. Um, <laughs> Catholics were getting saved, you know. Until now, we, become the, we became the topic in their meetings, you know. And they, they were discussing you. And how you're influencing everybody to become a Christian, <laughs> to become a born-again Christian. I'm like, well, uh, yeah, our role is to minister and preach the gospel. And so it was a very, that was the, the beginning, that season was the beginning of my understanding in a small way that God was actually calling me. And my friends used to joke and say, okay, uh, when we ask one another, so what do you want to become? So even before I've answered, people are like, ah, you, hey, we're waiting for the day when we will be coming to your meetings to just get blessed because you're an awesome preacher. I'm like, really? <laughs> I, I never conceptualized. I had my dreams. I was only doing this because I was in school. Uh, after that, there was a different direction I wanted to take. So I finished high school. I am trying to figure out what to do. So I, I first got a job as I'm trying to figure out my life. I didn't last four days. <laughs> it just what didn't it work. I mean, I got a job with an Asian company. Asians at that time were, were not liked people in our community because of just uh, their case, the caste system in the Asian, not Asian church, in the Asian community tended to treat Africans as inferior. So I land there, and we are being treated like, I just said, I, I can't, I can't do this. So four, four days was enough. I packed my bags and left. Then my father took me to uh, college uh, to do sales and marketing, oh, okay. uh, diploma in sales and marketing. So was it like <coughs> Nairobi University? Yeah, no, no, no. It was a small college, one of the smaller colleges. Okay. I went and did sales and marketing and then got a job. And then stayed there, but I was just feeling like a square peg in a round hole. Uh, and so I, I'm like, okay. Then I get employed. I am just feeling like I'm in the wrong place. So after a while, I told my dad, just let me stay at home until I figure out what God wants of my life. Mm 
So I went home. I stayed for the rest of that year trying to figure out, prayed until I started just sensing the conviction in my heart that God was calling me to ministry. I was 19. And I'm thinking, whoa, ministry. Who goes into ministry at 19? <laughs> really? <laughs> it was a struggle. It was, a, And the reason why I knew God was calling is because I was battling with it in my heart. Finally, one of the days when I'm seated in the house and I'm thinking about my life, I just told the Lord, okay, I surrender. I'm not going to fight about this. I choose to surrender. It's when I had peace. And so I went and talked to my dad and said, okay, there's a Bible school starting in the church. Can I start with that? And he was like, yes. And so he quickly enrolled me and I went. And I was like, I was expecting at least for you to resist because we live in this patriarchal society at that particular time. So if your dad said no, then it would be a good thing if he said no. <laughs> and I was hoping that he would, but he didn't. <laughs> so he quickly whisked me into the Bible school and I'm thinking, oh, great. Okay. So I did my first diploma uh, as I served in church. So the church now became, the youth group became the place where I was preaching and sharpening. I was a really raw preacher. Uh, my husband should tell you. He was in that youth group, so he kept telling me, Gloria, I was nowhere near a good communicator at that time. <laughs> so <laughs> he was my greatest critic. Anyway, so I, I, I joined the Bible school as I served in the church, in the youth group. And then once a year, our, the pastor of the local church I was in would give the youth an opportunity to preach and they'd say, Gloria is preaching. And so I, would, I started honing my skills to communicate in adult spaces at a very young age. And so, I mean, I finished the diploma and I'm excited. I go to a school that is offering a degree program and they ask me, Ati, okay, sorry, I'm using my slang Swahili. Which, which college is that? We haven't heard of anything like that. This diploma you've done, we will not recognize it, and it will not be recognized anywhere. So go to this school, this other school, go redo the diploma. Okay. And then bring that certificate, we will admit you for your degree program. So I went. My dad agreed. He paid for me again, and I settled into that school. That was the turning point. That is when I joined Nairobi Chapel, another um, church that was really impacting. Uh, I became a part of Nairobi Chapel, attended a few of their services. And then after I finished, when I was in this school, I heard about this other school that was offering degrees, and I went and did my degree at that particular point in time. I was now fully fledged in serving in Nairobi Chapel. I then finished my degree and they took me in and my the first ministry I landed after 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 doing my bachelor's was uh, church planting department as a coordinator. 
That was your first degree, your first job. My first, first job. ministry job. Yes. I oh. got into doing, uh, coordinating uh, churches that were being planted in Nairobi Chapel. Wow. That began my love affair with church planting. Yeah. Yeah. Did you planted churches in Nairobi first? Yes. Uh, through this, uh, uh, through Nairobi Chapel, uh, they had a, they were doing, okay, a pilot project. Or it's a guinea pig. <laughs> the church planters we sent out. It was experimental. Uh, we were trying to, to send um, marketplace ministers, uh, empower them with business skills, and they go plant a church. Uh, the project didn't do very well. Uh, reason is because uh, you're asking them to do two startups as opposed to sending uh, either somebody who's established in their business to plant a church or to plant a church and then later on they can start a business. But we were asking them to do both at the same time. So it didn't work. But churches were established and planted. And then it's when I was doing that, facilitating sourcing, training, and launching church planters. As I was doing that, I started sensing the call to plant a church. In the mix of all that, I got married. Uh, my husband also sensed he had a call. He joined me in the college uh, the, to do a bachelor's uh, degree. And so in the midst of all this, we started sensing God is calling us to actually plant a church. So where did you meet your husband? We met in church. Of course. Yeah, youth group. When I had just finished high school uh, and he liked me and he was a very close friend of my brother's and so he was ho always at, ho at home. So I perceived him as one of my brothers because he was very tight with my elder brothers. And so I treated him like a good friend, a brother, you know, real br blood brother. Even when he came and didn't find my brothers, we would sit down and chat. I didn't know he, there was more to his coming. That's just, pretty much universal. But. Yes, I wasn't getting it. <laughs> Until finally, after a number of years, I was in different relationships while he was just feeling miserable and he's not getting the courage to tell me anything. Uh, finally, one season... He, he came and uh, proposed when he learned that uh, I was now a free bird. He mastered the courage to come. And so we, we got married in the year 2000. Um, so we've been married 19 years. Wow. Yeah. How many kids you have? We have two children, two boys. That is uh, one who is turning 16 this October. The other one is turning 14 in... Uh, no... The 16-year-old is turning 16 in September. In October, the other one is turning 14. Yeah, so we went and planted our first church, the town called Meru. Served there for two years. And my health started failing because of the altitude. It was a very high, a place that was high in altitude. I mean, up, almost near Mount Kenya. Uh, oh. And so... Oxygen is less. And so I started having problems. My chest it was very cold. And so the doctor told me, you just have to relocate to a warmer environment. We got an opportunity to serve in one of the churches in Nairobi. 
left Nairobi Chapel temporarily. Now, can you talk about how you ended up coming to do seminary here? Yes. Because um, you're doing it, you're doing seminary here in the States rather than in Kenya? I, we actually started. My husband and I started. We have an incomplete master's. <laughs> we started, but we ran out of resources. Uh, it's very expensive to do theological education in our context. And unless you have a scholarship or you have a church that is backing you, it's really hard. And so what happened is that uh, when we joined the Wesleyan Church, we planted the church uh, in uh, 2013 and came into the Wesleyan Church. While we were in the Wesleyan Church, we felt the need. There's a time you serve until you feel, I think I'm hitting a plateau in ministry and I just need to be in a space where somebody else is pouring into my own leadership as I also shepherd others. And so that need drove us to start applying. So we applied to Asbury and other places. And then when our denominational leaders discovered, you're applying to where? Oh, let me tell you, let's tell you about a good college. And so they introduced us. And then uh, after a while, they said, okay, we are going to cover your expenses, your schooling expenses. Uh, so um, after searching and going, uh, trying to apply at Asbury and all that, we were looking at the church planting program in Asbury. But when we talked to our denominational leaders, they said, okay, no, we have uh, Wesley Seminary. That is going to, uh, that, that's a better college. So they recommended I do an MDiv, and my husband does an MA in ministerial leadership. This. So you're doing a Master of Divinity. Yes. And he's doing Master of Arts in what? In uh, ministerial leadership. In leadership, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. the Master of Divinity is longer. Yes, it is longer. More credits, right. It's been an amazing journey. It's been an amazing journey. One, uh, I think I was stuck uh, in leadership. I think it has opened me up, answered a lot of ministry questions I was having, it's helped me to just sharpen my skill in uh, ministry. And so I'm really glad I didn't do a master's earlier. Right. I am so glad that I didn't finish and then go into a master's and then quickly into a doctorate because I think I would have missed this opportunity to be here at this time and even learn the things I'm learning connect to the people I have connected with. Right. Even connect with you. Yeah. Yeah. We connected up a year ago yes. when I was on my sabbatical. Yes. And, uh, yeah. 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 So now we're here. I just finished my prayer retreat usually the first week of August. So it's my third time doing the same thing, same yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, we've been trying to connect, but it's hard to it's do international hard. podcasting. I'm still so new. And then be like, how do we make the time work and the Skype work yes. and the, all that? So when you're like, yes. I'm going to be, I'm going to be back in Indiana. I'm like, yes. I'm going to be in Indiana at the same time. Let's yes. find a way in some, in the state to connect. You know. Yeah. Last year you told a story. You're talking about. Can you talk about this women uh, reaching women, mm-hmm. um, teaching them about? trafficking and stuff like that. You can talk about the story exactly, but... When we landed in this town uh, to plant a church, uh, just to give a short summary so that you understand where I'm headed with that thought, 
we had been trying to to do research in other places but the research i think the way we went about the church planting research was leaving us more discouraged than encouraged and so we ended up changing changing locations changing locations because we were looking at some of the suburb towns of the city of Nairobi so finally i we sat in the house one day as just alone and feeling dejected because we'd been all over different towns you know within the city trying to figure out where we are going to plant this church a friend of mine calls and says well, have you thought about thika and my heart resonated with that statement i woke up and went to thika i didn't want to hear anything about thika from anyone <laughs> so we we went into thika and planted the church blindly wow yes because i had been so discouraged <laughs> in, in asking and asking so we just planted the church blindly a huge risk i don't recommend this to anyone <laughs> anyway so uh while we are in tika we begin to notice tika has a vibrant nightlife this town doesn't doesn't sleep you know there are other towns that things come to a standstill everybody goes to bed shops get closed even the bars close down the night was not tika was not sleeping and so then in the evenings we noticed that at, at around 7 the minute darkness would approach at that time nowadays even during the day you see you see them on the streets at night when darkness just approaches you'd see women lining up in the streets and they would be picked up either by very sleek cars some would just be picked up by men who just came and you go from street to street from street to street and that's when we discovered i think there's a problem in this town and as we continued doing ministry one of the men who was in the who later joined the church came to us and said i work for an organization that deals with commercial sex workers i was like hmm okay he wasn't born again but he liked the church and so he was <laughs> like i think you can be in a position to help these women i have 41 women who went out of uh, survival prostitution i was like i'm not sure i have what it takes to help them but let me meet them so they come and we they all of them come and they start giving their stories heartbreaking stories i was fighting tears in that meeting of the things they had been through while prying this trade in the town and then he gives us statistics and says in this town of thika we have 11000 documented prostitutes wow how big was the town like you know it's about 200000 people wow that's a huge percentage 11000 documented prostitutes and uh, uh, 7000 of them are women 
and the oh. rest are men, male prostitutes. That's a big percentage. Huge percentage. Now, this is the twist. Fika town is a hub for students. The town has grown because of institutions. It's a very young town. Like universities? Universities and colleges. Very young town. And so the bulk of these prostitutes, many of them are young. But then, the other twist is, you have older women, even grandmother, generational prostitution, where you have a grandmother who, who is in the, in the streets, you have the daughter, and you have the grandchild of this grandmother. And why we are calling it survival prostitution? Wait a minute, so all three of them, all, all three generations three. are yes. in the yes. profession. Yes. And the and the challenge with the way this whole thing has been happening is that you you have a situation where somebody has been left by the husband and they don't have a job. The husband was the sole breadwinner. The woman doesn't know where to start. And so a neighbor tells her, ah, you keep borrowing money from us. Come, we'll show you how to make money. She's introduced to the streets by people she knows. And so the survival element is in the sense that these are people, these are women who are, have not been able to find anything economically sustaining. And so they do it for survival, to support their families, to send their children to school. In fact, one of them was telling me, me I've educated most of my children through prostitution. And so they educate, they, they put food on the table. So they are doing prostitution as a means of survival. It's like a job to just keep us alive and to keep us sustained. So they've not found anything alternative. Alternative means of income. So we took in these women and uh, a few gentlemen among them and started working with them. Eventually, a few dropped out and were able to set up uh, 33 businesses uh, for, for the women and uh, disciple, quite a number of them got born again. They are just amazing testimonies. So those who are still standing even today, so grateful. Is there is there any one story that you can share? Yes, um, <clears throat> um, there's a lady who came in, and uh, she, she was earning peanuts. She was actually working, but she was earning peanuts. In the, in the organization she was working for. Uh, and it was a Christian organization working for, uh, it was in the school of the blind. <laughs> she was uh, uh, engaged in prostitution as she stays in the school. Of course, the school houses her as she, as she does all this, so she was juggling all this. And uh, unfortunately, um, it was affecting her whole family. And so when she came up, uh, through this channel of this program, she had the message of the gospel and struggled and finally she yielded and gave her life to Christ. But it presented a crisis. So now I can't go to the streets. What do you do with me? You know? Uh, so we talked to some of our uh, partners in ministry 
they managed to just facilitate us to give them some food packs. Fast forward, uh, she got discipled through the processes of uh, discipleship in the church and finally became a leader. And when we started the organization that caters for these women to sort of like train them into having skills that will be income generating, she was uh, selected as one of the people who would be one of the leaders. She was married before the prostitution. So when she became a born-again Christian, the husband started uh, talking to her. And one day, she, we, she calls me and she tells me, my husband is here and he wants to talk to my pastor. And I'm like, okay. So she, <laughs> we talk with him. And he wants to find out more about the church and everything. Whether And so they, they are on speaker. And so they are listening to me talk about, okay, what, what this next phase is. And so we walked with them. And uh, she did her wedding in April this year, renewing her vows. Aww. Her daughter started teaching in the children's church because even her, she got saved. When she saw the transformation of her mother, even the daughter got saved. She was beginning to get influence in that direction, but the daughter got saved and became the children's church, uh, one of the children's church teachers. She was serving in the church. I mean, she came with her whole family, her whole household got saved. <laughs> this one person coming to Christ and the husband even seeing the transformation in the wife, the children seeing the transformation in their mother, they all came to Christ. The others who also, same stories, they got born again, have been serving in the church in various capacities. And some who didn't necessarily join the church, they went to join other churches, and it, it was just a turning point for many of them. Yeah. It's not been easy. Ministry has been very challenging in a town that, let's just say, has serious strongholds. There has been some elements of backlash as we have gone about doing ministry in the town. And some of the challenges we have faced is just resistance uh, on the ground in certain quarters to the message of the gospel. And I come from Africa, and one of the things is, in our context, sometimes uh, spiritual warfare is a reality. And we've had to really invest a lot in prayer because of that. There's also the whole aspect, some of the challenges I've faced is just the whole dynamic of being a woman in ministry in a society that is very patriarchal, you know. Uh, my brother told me when I was getting into, when I was just, I'd just answered the call, I was in the first diploma. He said, you know, Gloria, this story of ministry, it will take you to work twice as hard as a man to gain half the recognition a man gets. Are you willing? And I was like, well, God has called me. I didn't know what that means. God has called me, so I'll stay the cause. <laughs> Ignorantly, without the, some of the leaders in that particular church 
sent my mom to come and tell me. Actually, they told my mom, please advise your daughter. At, she's going in at 19. Please advise your daughter to do something else and you know get involved in something else. And then later, when she's older, she can now serve the Lord. I don't understand why there's all this resistance and people are feeling very uncomfortable with this idea of me going into ministry at 19. But yes, I watched others being taken in to ministry and I was just seated there because the system, the church system I was in, did not have room for women in ministry. And in our country, there are only two women prominent women who are serving in prominent places, of course, visible, when I'm talking about prominence. Like regular Yeah, they were business. in a visible place where all of us could, in that era where it was hard to, to know things, we didn't have internet and anything. So it was a difficult journey to gain even recognition for the calling of God upon my life as a woman in ministry. And then as a single girl, so I would go to places to minister and they would ask the, pa the pastors who had brought me there. So who's the minister? Uh, and they would point at me and you can <laughs> almost girl. see the face fall, you know. <laughs> and then I remember one particular time when this minister who was the host of the place we had been invited said it in front of me in my hearing told the friend, are you sure that you can do it? <laughs> and, and the friend told him, yeah, you wait. <laughs> <laughs> but your father, he didn't think anything of it. He, saw, yeah, he my, just signed my, you up. My, my dad is a special dad. He, <laughs> he just wanted the best out of his children. Right. And he was happy, at least there's somebody else. The, among the, I, my brothers were working, so I was the first one to answer the call in a, in a full-time sense right. uh, at a young age. So Himi was excited. At least there's somebody who is following <laughs> the Lord, you know. <laughs> what? Yeah. So I'd be ignored. People would just be scared of me climbing onto their pulpits because they were just thinking, gosh, this tiny girl. Um, I was tinier than I look right now. <laughs> this tiny girl, gosh, uh, until I would stand in the pulpits and open my mouth, some now would come back apologetically. Uh, you've blessed us. From that skepticism all, all the way to you've blessed us. And I think these were simple ways God used to affirm me and to keep me on the cause because if he hadn't affirmed his calling upon my life I would have been very discouraged because there was a lot of resistance right. yes there was a lot of resistance I'm single, I'm young and I'm a woman so finally I get married in our African society when you get married you gain some some status in the society, in the eyes of the society so I get married and, uh, of course, reducing the amount of resistance because now I have a husband. But still, the attitude was the same. So Nairobi Chapel was an amazing church because they didn't have those stereotypes. What attracted me to them 
was uh, the fact that they had a female pastor. And I was like, finally, there's a really? church that's getting it. So, mm. you, so you've been a Christian for a long time, and you'd already accepted the call before you ever saw a woman preach. There was one, one. who was preaching nationally. Okay. And there's another one who had just started her ministry, and she was rising in prominence. But you hear their stories, they had to soldier on for a long time before they got recognition in our society. Yeah. yeah. So there, was, there were not many prominent people. So when I saw this lady, we met in the second college I was in, I just thought, this is a church I want to belong to. What, what advice would you give mm-hmm. to young women mm-hmm. who are God speaking to them and saying, I want you to serve serve my church. I would uh, encourage them. As we are looking at the landscape today of ministry, there is a generation that is beginning to miss out in the church, and that is the millennials. We need to mentor them in their own spaces to reach their own, the next generation. I've been passionate about next generation church. Uh, because of some of the things I'm beginning to observe, first of all, in the continent of Africa, uh, the demographics like right now suggest that Africa is a young continent, uh, young in the sense that it's a youthful continent. We have 1.2 billion people on the continent of Africa. 75% of that is below 30. Wow. Looking at those statistics and looking at the representation of youth in the church you're left with the and especially the young younger ones because what is happening is that uh, 41% is below 15 that's a high number of children and so they are ignored in the churches and not many churches have a vibrant children's ministry because we ignore them at such a young age, we will reap later by them ignoring the church when they start growing older. And so we've been sensitizing the church, especially the Wesleyan church in Africa. Please pay attention to millennials, 25 and below. Otherwise, the 25 and above, those are people who are fading. It's a population that is fading because of the demographics. Right. So it's, and all the churches are concentrating on this upper part of the pyramid and they have ignored the lower part that's of the bulk of the population. 75%, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a yes. lot. Wow. That's a lot. Wow. And that's where we are. At. Right. Because um, if you look at it, uh, also look at the mortality rates and all those things and how long people are living. You just find, first of all, there's just a lot of young mothers. So the marriage institution has even broken down. There's a lot of young mothers. In war-torn countries, you have a lot of orphans. Poverty has also produced a lot of orphans in the process. And so we are talking about a situation where we have so many kids. We planted this church, and the children's church was growing faster than the older church and children were coming to church unattended and you look at some of the homes so they're just coming on their own or yes they come on their own 
from the neighborhood they just some were even running away to come to church so finally we had to visit the parents and say we have your children we have your children <laughs> we have your children yeah continue lending them to us <laughs> so so what i'm simply saying is this and then you go to other continents you go to europe and there's a generation that is missing in the church uh, you go to especially europe you go to the other parts uh, of uh, I, I i don't know about the statistics here but the church here is fairly doing well but in other parts there's just a problem and so we are challenging the church as you are doing multi-generational ministries don't ignore millennials right and not just talking about multi-generational ministry please let it be intentional right that you as you're reaching the older the people who are more established also be intentional to reach the younger people because these are the ones that can just be ignored very easily children can be ignored very easily right yeah teens are problematic everywhere and some people don't want to deal with teens ministry but let's be intentional yeah mm. well you know raging hormones so yes it doesn't matter what continent you live on yeah yeah that's all yeah. the same yeah <laughs> yeah oh this is yeah. fun anything so. else you want to share or say or this how's this experience been being here in the states doing in, education compared to it has been a very it has been eye opening cross culturally let me put it that way because uh, part of what i've been involved in has not necessarily been within the confines of my country and so in the process of interacting with people from other places it's it has been empowering me in the process to be able to minister to people cross culturally and so that's one two i think uh, uh there's been some lasting friendships uh established over time support systems as 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 we are dealing with people from different places you find that you have a wider pool of people to help you interpret a, a culture right. you know like i have friends in the uk okay if i'm dealing with people from the uk please help me understand and navigate this <laughs> these right. waters cultural things i may think as an african i'm coming to your space but then i come and become offensive and so how do you, do i navigate certain things or if you're coming to my space then i help you navigate our culture and so this crisscrossing and coming here has just enriched that uh, ability to understand people outside my own context yeah and so that's what I and then meeting other women ministers it's very encouraging uh, sometimes i feel we are the minority <laughs> in ministry you know some place there's some place on earth where yeah. like where the women are taking over yes some places and the men are like 10% or something yeah some places it's happening with the women who are but uh, for a number of places uh, it's just encouraging to find other ministers uh ladies who are in lead positions in their churches um and we, where you able to sit down and understand each other encourage each other uh, support one another through <laughs> through ministry uh yeah. so that has been a very enriching experience yeah 
and especially the whole aspect of finding other women i think for me that has been a very enriching highlight you're about halfway through right yes i'm halfway through yeah i'm halfway through so you come on an education visa and you come like what a couple times a year it has been scheduled twice a year but i think we are coming to the end of that uh, the rest will be online so my last uh, class i attend is in january after that uh, a lot of it i'll do online what i yeah. might have to drive all the way over here <laughs> one last time to have yeah. dinner with you and angela yeah Aww. yeah i mean mm. Obviously, we see each other on Facebook yeah, and Instagram, and face, but it's not yeah. the same. Yeah, it's maybe, not the same. Maybe one day I'll yes. get to... And yeah. In fact, <laughs> please bring Angela. I will, I will. I might have to bring my husband too, though, because he's yeah. like, if you're going to Kenya, yes, I'm going to. Uh, at least now you have a, somebody who can have a contact <laughs> on the ground. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's all I have to say. Okay. But I'm so excited because you're my first international... Uh-huh. guest on this podcast all right <laughs> yeah we've been uh, i've been looking forward to it and uh, yeah we keep uh, not managing to meet so finally today. <laughs> <laughs>